Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Oh, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind or printed paired. Materials or items read in Ayers LA are the copyright properties of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. So let's get into it. We're going to start off uh, with a few little obituaries here. This first one is from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 6, 2024. Malcolm Reed Feinberg. May 24th, 1933 to February 2nd, 2024, author unknown. Malcolm Reed Feinberg of Tarzana, California, died peacefully at home on February 2nd, 2024. He was 90 years old. Matt was born on May 24, 1933 in Flint, Michigan to Anne Ani Sandler Feinberg, an elementary school teacher, and Gilbert Feinberg, a dry cleaner. The family relocated to Los Angeles in the late 40s. After graduating from Fairfax High School in 1951, Mal went, to, uh, went on to study accounting at the University of California, Los Angeles. While at UCLA, Mal fell in love with Joyce Sandra Marks, whom he met on a train to Berkeley to cheer on the Bruins. They were wed on July 31, 1955, shortly after Mal graduated with his bachelor's degree. He then began his career as a certified public accountant at a firm in Los Angeles. Mel, an only child, had always missed having brothers and sisters and therefore wanted a big family, as did Joyce. Together they raised four children, Richard, Deborah, Greg, and Karen. In 1960, Mel and Joyce moved their growing family over the hill to Woodland Hills in the San Fernando Valley, and Mal soon thereafter established his own firm, the Malcolm R. Feinberg Accountancy Corporation. In the early 1960s, eager to help his parents live a better life, than the dry cleaning business was providing, Mal assembled a partnership with them, and together they leased the Breakers Motel in Santa Monica, which Ani and Gil managed for the rest of their working lives. A highlight of the four kids' childhood was accompanying Mal and Joyce on visits to the motel, crossing the street to the beach, and people watching on the Santa Monica Pier. Intrigued by the real estate business, Mal built more partnerships to buy apartment buildings in and around Encino, which he managed through a second company he established, Century Equities. By the late 1970s, managing his growing real estate portfolio became his passion, though he continued to prepare tax returns too, right up until his long-overdue retirement at age 88. Mao was active in Southern California's Jewish community and was a generous donor to many causes. He was president of the Encino chapter of B'nai B'rith, and eldest son Rick recalls accompanying him to deliver Thanksgiving dinners to families in need as part of the organization's community service. Over the years, the family belonged to several synagogues, including Temple Solel, Valley Beth Shalom, and Temple of the Arts. Mal had other passions too, such as sports, sports and more sports. He played softball and tennis, once breaking a rib in a spectacular collision with a fellow outfielder during a softball game. Throughout his entire life, he was an avid sports fan. His favorite team was the Los Angeles Dodgers. For many years, he had season tickets to Dodger games, and he was at the park on September 9, 1965, when Sandy Koufax pitched his perfect game against the Chicago Cubs. Mal brought a mitt to every game, and one night in 2009, was finally lined up to catch a foul ball. 
But as it made its final approach, Matt was jostled by the crowd, and the ball ended up hitting his left eye. Thanks to an experimental implant, he didn't lose his sight. And a post-surgery phone call from Dodger manager Tommy Lazarda almost made it worth the trauma. Matt was survived by his loving wife Joyce, their son Rick, and his wife Susan Tresh Feinberg, and their daughter Deborah Drebin. Their son Greg and his wife Annie Fitzgerald, their daughter Karen, and her husband Paul Mack. Eight grandchildren, John, Danielle, Lucas, Adam, Deanna, Aaron, Thor, and Jesse. Five great-grandchildren, Theo, Winnie, Jalen, Callisto, and Lena, and his brother-in-law, Dan Marks, and his wife Peggy, and countless cousins. A special heartfelt thanks to Roland and Vivian Herrera, Mal's loving caregivers, who took exceptionally wonderful care of him for the last year and a half of his life. In lieu of flowers, the family requests donations in Mal's honor to the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research Grand Central Station, P.O. Box 4777, New York, New York, 10163-4777. Service and burial were private. That was Malcolm Reed Feinberg, May 24th, 1933 to February 2nd, 2024. Author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. Okay, here's a little short one from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. Helen Gardner-Feuerstein, September 30, 1919 to February 4th, 2024. Author unknown. Helen Gardner Feuerstein, born September 30, 1919, died February 4, 2024, at 104 years young. Daughter of Louis Gardner and Rosalind Wolf Gardner, born in Boston and will be buried beside her beloved husband, James Mayer Feuerstein, at Mount Sinai, Los Angeles. Educated at Boston Girls Latin uh, and loved all sports and ballet. Spent months before World War II traveling in Europe with parents, brothers, sister, and private tutors by steamship. Her baby brother Herbie passed away during World War II on a train mission, training mission on a B-52 over the Atlantic. Her number one passion was spending time with her son, Louis, and her beloved granddaughter, Rochelle, and grandson, Danny. Her hands were never idle, knitting, needlepoint, crossword puzzles, Solitaire, Sudoku, cooking, Scrabble, words with friends, and she was always uh, reading a novel. She spent her time with Jimmy and the kids aboard their sailboat tribute in Cherry Cove and loved walking, bike riding, shopping, and spending time at the Yacht Club every Wednesday through Sunday. She volunteered at Vista Del Mar, where the Feuerstein Residential Plaza was built in honor of she and her late husband, Jimmy. She loved animals and spending time at the ranch with the family. She was the life of the party and enjoyed daily Chardonnay chocolate, being surrounded by flowers and gazing at the ocean through her binoculars. She is survived by her son, Louis Gardner Feuerstein, and his wife, Debbie, her grandchildren, Rochelle, Brad, Danny, and Julie, and her cherished great-grandchildren, Annalise, Jimmy, Eliana, Asher, and her beloved nieces and nephews. There will be a private burial at Mount Sinai Thursday, February 8 at 1 o'clock p.m., followed by a celebration of life at the Del Rey Yacht Club Marina Del Rey. Donations to Vista Del Mar in lieu of flowers. That was Helen Gardner Feuerstein, September 30, 1919 to February 4, 2024, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 7, 2024. 
Here's one more obit from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 8, 2024. Pearl Berg, 1909 to 2024. L.A. woman was world's ninth oldest person. A long life dedicated to her family, Jewish faith, and philanthropic causes ends at 114 by Karen Garcia. Pearl Berg, the ninth oldest person in the world and a source of love and wit to her family, has died in Los Angeles at 114. Berg had many titles, including the world's oldest Jewish person, the third oldest American, and the ninth oldest person in the world, according to the Gerontology Research Group. But to Berg's family, she was everyone's mother figure, full of wit and sincerity. She maybe had a sip of Sabbath wine, but she didn't drink, she didn't smoke, she ate sensibly, had good emotional balance, and she clearly had remarkable genes, said Berg's youngest son, Robert Berg. Berg died peacefully in her Los Feliz home on February 1st. Born on October 1st, 1909, Berg was raised in Pittsburgh, but the Depression decimated her father's career in the automobile business, which prompted the family to search for a new beginning elsewhere. They moved to Los Angeles, and about a week later, Berg met her future husband, Mark Berg. The couple married in 1931 and later had two children, Dr. Alan Paul Berg and Robert Joel Berg. Berg's husband, Mark, was the general manager of his family business, Berg Metals, and later started other companies of which he was the minority shareholder. National leaders of the industry would have dinner at the Berg residence, but it wasn't just to talk shop, Robert recalls, was also to speak with his mother. They came because of her scintillating personality, wonderful laughter, prep, uh, repartee, great cooking, and particularly her coconut cream cake, Robert said. I mean, these are big-time people, and she was the secret weapon, I think, to a lot of business success. Her husband died in 1958, in the 58th year of their marriage. Burke's philanthropic work centered on Nordia Chapter of Hadassah, where she was an active officer and served as president for a few years, and the Sisterhood of Temple Israel of Hollywood, where she was a member. The Times interviewed Burke on her 110th year of her life, during which she actively played bridge, read, ate chocolate, and enjoyed the company of family, friends, and her team of caregivers. With every new person she met, Burke brought them into the fold of her life. Her only grandchild, Belinda Berg, said her commitment to family was unwavering. When Belinda brought her wife, Catherine Ramquist, to meet her grandmother, she welcomed the couple with open arms and shortly afterward, Berg quietly added gay and lesbian organizations to her philanthropic list because she wanted to support us in that kind of global way, Belinda said. Berg would always say to me, all good things for you, and I knew deep down she wanted the very best for me. I felt it, Ramquist said. The year Berg's husband died, Robert's second wife, Vivian Larry Derrick, said she remembered wanting to share cultural dishes with the family, and Berg encouraged her to. It was just her natural way of integrating me into the family, Derrick said. During the last four years of her life, the family said her body was beginning to slow down, but she maintained her wit and her ability to tell a tale. That was Pearl Berg, 1909 to 2024, L.A. Woman Was World's Ninth Oldest Person by Karen Garcia from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 11, 2024. All right, on to Israel. This first one is from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 4, 2024. 
Israeli military issues its most rigid warning to Hezbollah by Najib Jovain and Sami Magdi. Rafa Gaza Strip Israel's military on Saturday issued its most detailed warning yet to Hezbollah in neighboring Lebanon that it would be ready to attack immediately if provoked as it recounted its actions along the northern border during four months of war in Gaza and made a rare acknowledgement of dozens of airstrikes inside Syria against the military group. We do not choose war as our first priority, but we are certainly prepared, military spokesperson Daniel Hagari said, adding, we will continue to act whenever wherever Hezbollah is present. We will continue to act wherever it is required in the Middle East. What is true for Lebanon is true for Syria, and is true for other, more distant places. The comments followed the defense minister's warning that a ceasefire in Gaza against the militant group Hamas wouldn't mean Israel wouldn't attack Hezbollah as needed. Efforts to close wide gaps between Israel and Hamas in pursuit of a ceasefire continued in the region where concerns about a wider war with Iran-allied groups remain. A top Hamas official, Osama Hamdan, said the group was studying the proposal put forward by the U.S., Egypt, Qatar, and Israel, but insisted on Israel accepting conditions including a permanent ceasefire. The war in Hamas-run Gaza has leveled vast swaths of the tiny besieged enclave, displaced 85% of its population, and pushed a quarter of residents to starvation. The health ministry in Gaza said Saturday that 107 people were killed over the last 24 hours, bringing the wartime total to 27,238. More than 66,000 people have been wounded. In Gaza's southernmost town of Rafah, at least 17 people, including women and children, were killed in two separate airstrikes overnight, according to the registration office at Abu Yosef al-Najjar Hospital, where the bodies were taken. The first strike hit a residential building east of Rafah, killing at least 13 people from the Hijazi family. The dead included four women and three children, hospital officials said. Two children are still under the rubble, and still we don't know anything about them, relative Ahmad Hijazi said. The second struck a house in Rafa's Janena area, killing at least two men and two women. More than half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million has taken refuge in Rafa and surrounding areas. Israel's defense minister warned earlier in the week that Israel might expand combat to Rafa after focusing on Khan Yunus, the largest city in southern Gaza. The statement alarmed aid officials and diplomats and Israel would risk significantly disrupting strategic relationships with the U.S. and Egypt if it were to send troops into Rafah, a key entry point for aid. In Khan Yunus, where Israel's military said operations would continue for several days, the Palestinian Red Crescent said at least 11 people were injured when Israel's military fired smoke bombs at displaced people sheltering at its headquarters. It followed a siege that Israel's military has carried out on the Red Crescent's facilities for 12 days, the group said, adding that it had documented the killing of 43 people, including three staff members, in the buildings by Israeli fire during the time. Israel's military didn't address charities, the charity's allegations of firing on the building, the killings, or the blocking of access, and asserted that Al-Amal hospital facilities had adequate fuel and electricity. Israel says it's determined to crush Hamas and prevent it from returning to power in Gaza, an enclave it has ruled since 2007, in response to its October 7 attack 
They killed about 1,200 Israelis and triggered the war. Hamas continues to hold scores of the roughly 250 hostages taken in the October 7 attack after more than 100 were released during a one-week truce in November. Those releases were in exchange for 240 Palestinian prisoners. Thousands of people gathered again in Tel Aviv on Saturday evening for an anti-government protest uh, to express how frust a growing frustration at how Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his administration have handled the war. If we need to stop the war now and call for a ceasefire in order to bring those people back home to their families and start to rebuild them and take care of them, that's the most important thing for us to do, said one protester, Karen Levy. And a sign of Hamas's resilience, despite Israel's deadly air and ground attacks in the last four months, four residents and a senior official in the militant group said it has begun to resurface in areas where Israel withdrew the bulk of its forces a month ago, deploying uh, police officers and making salary payments to some of its civil servants in Gaza City. The four Gaza City residents said that in recent days, uniformed, and plain-clothes police officer deployed near police headquarters and other government offices, including near Shifa Hospital, the territory's largest. The residents said they saw the return of civil servants and subsequent Israeli airstrikes near the makeshift offices. The return of police marks an attempt to reinstate order in the devastated city after Israel withdrew a significant number of troops from the northern Gaza last month. A Hamas official said, speaking on condition of anonymity because he was not authorized to talk to the media. The official said the group's leaders had given directions to re-establish order in parts of the north where Israeli forces had withdrawn, including by helping prevent the looting of shops and houses abandoned by residents who had heeded repeated Israeli evacuation orders and headed to southern Gaza. Since seizing control of Gaza nearly 17 years ago, Hamas has been operating a government bureaucracy with tens of thousands of civil servants, including teachers and police who operate separately from the group's secretive military wing. Israeli military leaders had said that they had broken up the command structure of Hamas battalions in the north, but that individual fighters were continuing to carry out guerrilla-style attacks. Israel claims to have killed more than 9,000 Hamas fighters. That was Israeli military issues as most rigid warning to Hezbollah by Najib Jobain and Sami Magdi from the Los Angeles Times Sunday, February 4, 2024. Jobain and Rafa and Magdi and Cairo write for the Associated Press. AP writers Julia Frankel in Jerusalem and Jamie Keaton in Geneva contributed to this report. All right, here's this from the Los Angeles Times Monday, February 5th, 2024. Far-right Israeli minister lashes out at Biden. Officials sparks outrage among colleagues by saying Trump would allow more leeway to fight Hamas by Melanie Lidman and Sami Magdi. Jerusalem. A far-right minister in Israel's government has criticized President Biden and said that having Donald Trump in power in the U.S. would allow more freedom to fight Hamas. The comments sparked outrage Sunday among other Israeli officials and highlighted the sensitivity of the relations as U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken visits the region again this week. The Biden administration has skirted Congress to rush weapons to Israel and shielded its ally from international calls for a ceasefire in the four months since Hamas's October 7 attack. 
but the White House has also urged Israel to take radar measures to avoid harming civilians and to facilitate the deliver of aid to Gaza. Etamar ben Givar, Israel's national security officer, said in an interview with the Wall Street Journal that Biden was hindering Israel's war efforts. Instead of giving us his full backing, Biden is busy giving humanitarian aid and fuel to Gaza, which goes to Hamas, Ben Givor said. If Trump was in power, the U.S. conduct would be completely different. His remarks drew fire from Benny Gantz, a retired general and member of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's three-man wartime cabinet, who said Ben Givor was causing tremendous damage to U.S.-Israeli relations. Opposition leader Yar Lapid also posting on social media platform X, formerly Twitter, said Ben Giver's remarks prove he does not understand foreign relations. The Palestinian Authority Foreign Ministry condemned Ben Giver's comments as racist and called for international sanctions against him, saying he threatens the region's stability. Netanyahu, without mentioning Ben Giver by name, appeared to refer to his remarks when addressing a cabinet meeting. There are those who say no to everything, receiving applause at home, but they're also endangering vital interests, he said. Ben Giver, along with other far-right figures, has called for voluntary mass immigration of Palestinians from Gaza and the return of Jewish settlements, which Israel dismantled when it withdrew troops from the territory in 2005. The Biden administration is opposed to such a scenario. Ben Givar and other key members of the Prime Minister's coalition have threatened to bring down the government if they believe Netanyahu is too soft on Hamas. Netanyahu told the cabinet that the military was carrying out very aggressive raids in northern and central Gaza while dealing with remaining Hamas battalions around Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah. The war has leveled vast swaths of the Gaza Strip, displaced 85% of its population, and pushed a quarter of residents to starvation. The health ministry in Gaza said Sunday that 127 bodies had been brought to hospitals in the previous 24 hours, bringing the death toll to 27,365. The ministry does not distinguish between civilians <clears throat> and combatants, but says most of, their, most of those killed were women and children. In central Gaza, Israeli airstrikes hit a house and a mosque in Deir al-Bala, killing 29 and wounding at least 60, including children, according to an Associated Press journalist who was at the scene. At Aquiza Martyrs Hospital, a nurse cleaned the head injuries of a boy who sat between two other children, one trembling, the other in tears. Palestinians found shelter at the hospital, but little relief. Some like me, someone like me has been here for three months or two and a half months, and I haven't had a shower. What can we do? We want to go back to our home, said Basma al-Haddad, who was displaced from Gaza City. Two children were killed in separate airstrikes in Rafah, according to the registration office at the hospital where the bodies were taken. The first hit a house in a refugee camp, killing a 12-year-old. The second hit a room west of the Rafa border crossing, killing a two-year-old. The bodies lay on the hospital floor. A female relative bent down to gently touch one child's face. More humanitarian aid to Gaza will be a top priority as Blinken visits the region, Biden's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told CBS. Blinken is set to begin Monday in Saudi Arabia and will stop in Egypt, Qatar, Israel, and the West Bank. 
Another focus is Israel's tense negotiations mediated by the U.S., Qatar, Egypt, and Egypt aimed at freeing more than 100 captives taken in the October 7 Hamas attack in return for ceasefire and the release of Palestinians jailed in Israel. It's up to Hamas to come forward and respond to what is a serious proposal, Sullivan told NBC, adding that there was no clear idea how many of the hostages remain alive. Hamas and other militants killed at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, in the October 7 attack and abducted more than 240 others. More than 100 captives, mostly women and children, were released during a week-long ceasefire in November in exchange for the release of 240 Palestinians who were imprisoned by Israel. Hamas has said it won't release any more hostages until Israel ends its attacks. It also demands the release of thousands of Palestinian uh, prisoners. Netanyahu has publicly ruled out both demands. Hamas is expected to respond to the latest ceasefire offer in the coming days. That was far-right Israeli minister lashes out at Biden by Melanie Melanie Lindman and Sammy Magdi from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 5th, 2024. Lindman and Magdi write for the Associated Press. Right from the world section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, February 8, 2024, Israel Hamas remain far apart on a deal. Blinken says there is space for agreement despite Netanyahu's rejection of militant group's proposal by Matthew Lee, Wafa Sharafa, and Sami Magdi. Tel Aviv. U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken said Wednesday that a ceasefire and hostage release agreement between Israel and Hamas remained possible despite the two sides being far apart on the central terms of a deal. Blinken was in the region trying to broker an arrangement that could bring a a respite in Israel's war against Hamas, which is entering its fifth month after killing more than 27,000 Palestinians, displacing much of the territory's population and sparking a humanitarian catastrophe. Those diplomatic efforts were rattled earlier in the day when Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a detailed three-phase plan by Hamas that would unfold over two, four and a half months. The plan stipulated that all hostages would be released in exchange for hundreds of Palestinian Palestinians imprisoned by Israel, including senior militants, and an end to the war. Netanyahu called Hamas's plan delusional, dismissed any proposal that leaves the militant group in full or partial control of Gaza. He said military pressure was the best way to free the roughly 100 hostages held in the Gaza Strip where they were taken after Hamas's October 7 cross-border rampage into southern Israel, which sparked the war. Israel has made destroying Hamas's governing and military abilities one of its wartime objectives. The Hamas proposal would effectively leave the group in power in Gaza and allow it to rebuild its military capabilities. But Blinken downplayed the posturing, saying it was part of the arduous negotiating process. It's not flipping a light switch. It's not yes or no, he said. While there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, we do think It creates space for agreement to be reached, and we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. Blinken is trying to advance the ceasefire talks while pushing for a larger post-war settlement in which Saudi Arabia would normalize relations with Israel in return for a clear, credible, time-bound path to the establishment of a Palestinian state. But the increasingly unpopular Netanyahu is opposed to Palestinian statehood 
and his hawkish government coalition could collapse if he is seen as making too many concessions. Israel remains deeply shaken by Hamas's October 7 attack in which militants burst through its vaunted defenses and rampaged across the south southern part of the country, killing some 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and abducting about 250. Hamas's statements came in response to a proposal drawn up by the United States, Israel, Qatar, and Egypt. The militant group's uh, reply was published in Lebanon's Al-Akbar newspaper, which has ties to the powerful Hezbollah militant group. A Hamas official and two Egyptian officials confirmed the proposal's authenticity. A fourth official familiar with the talks later clarified the sequencing of the releases. All spoke in condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to brief the media on negotiations. Under the proposal, in the first 45-day phase, Hamas would release all women and children hostages as well as older and sick men in exchange for an unspecified number of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Additionally, Israel would withdraw from populated areas of Gaza, cease uh, aerial operations, allow far more aid to enter, and permit Palestinians to return to their homes, including in devastated northern Gaza. The second phase to be negotiated during the first would include the release of all remaining hostages, mostly soldiers, in exchange for all Palestinian detainees over the age of 50, including senior militants. Israel would release an additional 1,500 prisoners, 500 of whom would be specified by Hamas, and complete its withdrawal from Gaza. In the third phase, the sides would exchange the remains of hostages and prisoners. Israel has has said he will not secure a deal with any cost, signaling he would not agree to the release of senior militants. At the news conference at which he responded to Hamas's demands, Netanyahu said the Israeli military had achieved many of its goals and that victory was a matter of months away. He said that forces had dismantled 18 of Hamas's 24 battalions, destroying tunnels and killing militants, and that military pressure on Hamas was the best way to bring about the release of the hostages. He said preparations were underway for the military to move into southern Gaza, the southern Gaza border town of Rafah, where hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians have crammed crammed to flee the fighting. We are on the way to an absolute victory, Netanyahu said, There is no other solution. That stands in contrast to the stance of some Israeli officials who say that the two goals of destroying Hamas's capabilities and freeing the hostages are incompatible and that only a deal can lead to the the hostages' release. Meanwhile, Hamas has continued to put up stiff resistance across Gaza and its police force has returned to the streets in places where Israeli troops have pulled back. Netanyahu ruled out any arrangement that leaves Hamas in control of any part of Gaza. He also said that Israel is the only power capable of guaranteeing security in the long term. In a news conference immediately after his appearance, hostages who were freed in late November uh, in a late November deal said that they worried that Netanyahu was taking too hard a line and that the remaining hostages and their families would pay the price. If you continue in this approach of seeking the collapse of Hamas, there won't be any hostages to free, said Atirpal Adina Moshi, who was freed nearly 50 days into her captivity. Hamas is holding more than 130 hostages, but around 30 are believed to be dead.
most of them killed October 7. There is still little talk of grand diplomatic bargains in Gaza, where <clears throat> Palestinians yearn for an end to fighting that has appended everyone's every, every aspect of their lives. We pray to God that it stops, says Ghazi Abu Isa, who fled his home and sought shelter in the central town of Deir al-Bala. There was no water, electricity, food, or bathrooms. Those living in tents have been drenched by winter rains and flooding. We have been humiliated, he said. New mothers struggle to get baby formula and diapers, which can be bought only at vastly inflated prices, if they can be found at all. Some have resorted to feeding solid food to babies younger than six months, despite the health risks. When Blinken said Israel's response to the October 7 attack was fully justified and he ruled out any role for Hamas in post-war Gaza, he criticized some of Israel's responses. He said the daily toll of Israel's military operations on innocent civilians remains too high. Israelis were dehumanized in the most horrific way on October 7, and the hostages have been dehumanized in every day since. But that cannot be a license to dehumanize others, he said. The Palestinian death toll from four months of war is 27,707, the health ministry in the Hamas-run territory said Wednesday. That includes 123 bodies brought to hospitals in the previous 24 hours. At least 11,000 injured people still need urgent evacuations from Gaza, it said. The ministry does not distinguish between civilians and combatants in its figures, but says most of the dead are women and children. That was Israel Hamas remained far apart on a deal by Matthew Lee, Wafa Sharafa, and Sammy Magdi from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday, February 8, 2024. Lee, Sharafa, and Magdi write for the Associated Press. Okay, here's one final Israeli story from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 9, 2024. Uh, photos show Israel creating possible buffer zone. Satellite images from Gaza Strip show new demolition and area. U.S. opposes any reduction in territory by John Gambrell. Jerusalem. Satellite photos show new demolition along a kilometer-wide path on the Gaza Strip's border with Israel, according to an analysis by the Associated Press and Experts reports. The destruction comes as Israel has said it wants to establish a buffer zone there over international objections, further tearing away at land the Palestinians want for a state. The demolition along the path represents only a sliver of the wider damage from the Israel-Hamas war seen in Gaza that one assessment suggests has damaged or destroyed half of all the buildings within the coastal enclave. Israeli leaders have signaled that they would like to establish a buffer zone as a defensive measure, which they contend could prevent a repeat of the October 7 cross-border attack by Hamas that triggered the four-month-old war. That's despite U.S. warnings not to shrink Gaza's territory. Israel's military declined to answer whether it is carving out a buffer zone when asked by the AP, only saying it takes various imperative actions that are needed in order to implement a defense plan that will provide improved security in southern Israel. However, the military has acknowledged it has demolished buildings throughout the area. An Israeli government official speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss ongoing internal deliberations said a temporary security buffer zone is under construction. 
It's unclear whether it would include barriers or empty stretches of patrolled land. But the scope of the demolitions calls into question how temporary the possible buffer zone will be. Gaza has nearly a nearly 37-mile border with Israel, with its back up against the Mediterranean Sea. Creating the buffer zone would take some 23 square miles out of the enclave, which has a total land mass of about 139 square miles. Toward the southern part of the Gaza Strip, much of the land in the ima imagined buffer zone is farmland that abuts the vast $1 billion border barrier constructed on Israeli land that separates it from the territory. But near the town of Kurbet Kuza, where the border turns into the northwest, it's a different story. Satellite images from Planet Labs PBC analyzed by the AP show significant destruction of buildings and land bulldozed in a roughly 2.3 square mile area. Just over 2.5 miles north, farmland has been torn up into bare dirt along where the potential buffer zone would sit. Farther north is an area in central Gaza's Magazi refugee camp. There, Israeli reservists preparing explosives to demolish two buildings near the Israeli border were killed in January when a militant fired a rocket-propelled grenade at a tank nearby. The blast triggered the explosives, collapsing both two-story buildings onto soldiers, killing 21. A large complex of warehouses sits destroyed just southeast of Gaza City, also within the potential buffer zone. The AP's visual analysis corresponds with data from scientists studying satellite data to make sense of the war's damage. Adi Ben-Nun, the manager of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem's Geographic Information Systems Center, has surveyed the damage along the potential buffer zone up until January 17. Of some 2,850 buildings that could potentially face demolition, 1,100 have already been damaged, he told the AP. Across the Gaza Strip, he estimates 80,000 structures have been damaged during the war. Corey Schur of City University of New York and Jamon Van, Van Den Hock of Oregon State University put the damage even higher. They estimate at least half of all buildings in Gaza, some 143,900 structures have been damaged or destroyed during the war. The most intense damage has been around Gaza City the first city targeted in the ground offensive, though damage has increased in the southern city of Khan Yunus. In the area where the one kilometer six-tenths of a mile buffer would be, at least 1,329 buildings have been damaged or destroyed since the war began, the U.S. analyst told the AP. Gaza's border with Egypt already has a narrow buffer zone known as the Philadelphia Corridor, which was created as part of Cairo's 1979 peace deal with Israel. In December, Israel informed Western allies and regional Arab nations about its plans to create a buffer zone between the Gaza Strip and Israeli territory, Egyptian and Western diplomats told the AP. The discussions then did not include specifics. News of the buffer zone sparked worries from the international community about eating further into Palestinian territory, particularly in the U.S., which has been Israel's main backer during the war. We do not support any diminution, diminution of, US, of the territory of Gaza, U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken warned January 25th. 
The State Department did not respond to questions on the analysis of the demolition in the possible buffer zone. However, State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller on Wednesday told journalists that officials said that officials had raised with Israel the issue of the establishment of a buffer zone. I will say we have made clear to them the same thing we have said publicly, which is we are opposed to any reduction in the size of the territory of Gaza, Miller said. Meanwhile, there has been a continued growth of Israeli settlements in the West Bank under the far-right government of Benjamin Netanyahu. That further undermines the prospects for an independent Palestinian state in the long-sought two-state solution of, to the decades-old Israeli-Palestinian crisis. The Palestinians want to want the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza Strip, areas captured by Israel in the 1967 Mideast War, for their future state. The Palestinian Foreign Ministry, under the Palestinian Authority that oversees the occupied West Bank, said in a statement that Israel continues to implement its occupation and colonial uh, projects in the Gaza Strip, evident in its recent re-initiation of what it calls buffer zones along the borders of Gaza Strip. That was photos show Israel creating possible buffer zone by John Gambrell from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 9, 2024. Gambrell writes for the Associated Press. All right, on to some other stories. This is also from the same World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 9, 2024. Zelensky calls for change in leadership of Ukraine's army. Replacing top general would be the biggest shakeup of military brass since Russia's invasion in 2022, from the Associated Press. Kiev, Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with Ukraine's top general and told him it's time for someone new to lead the army. In a post on X, Zelensky said he thanks General Valery Zaluzny for his two years of service and discussed possible replacements for the top military job. The time for such a renewal is now, Zelensky said. A statement followed days of speculation spurred by local media reports that Zelensky would sack Zaluzny, a move that would amount to the most serious shakeup of the top military brass since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces claim to have shot down a Russian attack helicopter in eastern Ukraine near the city of Avdivka where soldiers are fighting from street to street as Russia's army steps up its four-month campaign to surround Kiev's defending troops. Ukrainian soldiers used a portable anti-aircraft missile to take down the Ka-52 Alligator attack helicopter, one of the Russian Air Force's deadliest weapons, according to Alexander Tarnovsky, commander of Ukrainian units fighting on the southeastern front line. The roughly 930-mile line of contact has shifted little during recent months of wintry weather. But as the war in Ukraine nears its two-year anniversary, Av- Avdigva has become a primary focus of Moscow's forces, the UK Defense Ministry said in its assessment Thursday. Street-to-street combat is taking place in the city as Ukrainian troops seek to keep open their main supply route amid intense bombardment, the ministry said on X, formerly Twitter. The general staff of Ukraine's armed forces reported Thursday that its troops had fended off 40 enemy assaults around Avdivka over the previous 24 hours. That has roughly doubled the number of daily Russian assaults at other points along the front line. 
Russia's Pravda newspaper reported Thursday that the Russian army was attempting to cut a key logistics supply route for Ukraine in the village of Lestokny, about four miles west of Avdivka. The Russian military has used electronic warfare to take out the Starlink communication system that Ukrainian troops use to communicate, Pravda said. Ukraine has built multiple defenses in Avdivka, complete with concrete fortifi- uh, fortifications and a network of tunnels. Despite massive losses of personnel and equipment, Russian troops have slow, slowly advanced since October. The fight has evolved into a gruesome effort for both sides. It has been likened to the nine months of fighting for Bakhmut, the Ukraine war's longest and bloodiest battle. That ended with Russia capturing the, bomb, uh, the bombed-out deserted city in May in what Moscow hailed as a major triumph. Bakhmut and Avdivka are located in Ukraine's Donetsk region. Moscow-backed rebels seized part of the region in 2014, and Russia illegally annexed all of it in 2022 with three other Ukrainian regions. That was Zelensky calls for change in leadership of Ukraine's army from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, February 9, 2024. All right, on to this one from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 5th, 2024. Pope reaffirms special Christian Jewish bond. His supportive letter comes amid rising anti-Semitism since war's outbreak from the Associated Press. Vatican City. In a letter to Israeli Jews that he said was prompted by messages from Jewish organizations around the world, Pope Francis reaffirmed Christians' special relationship with Jews amid rising anti-Semitism since the outbreak of the Gaza War. The Saturday letter served as a belated fence-mending after Francis was criticized for his initial response to the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel. Francis said the Holy Land has been cast into a spiral of unprecedented violence, part of what the Pope referred to as a sort of piecemeal world war, with serious consequences on the lives of many populations. My heart is torn at the sight of what is happening in the Holy Land. By the power of so much division and so much hatred, the pontiff wrote, the whole world looks on it at looks on at what is happening in, in that land with a pre- apprehension, apprehension and pain. In November, the Pope set off a firestorm by using the word terrorism generically after meeting separately with relatives of, te- of Israeli hostages in Gaza and Palestinians living through the war. Jewish leaders criticized his failure to explicitly condemn Hamas's attack and bristled after the Palestinian visitors reported, reported he had used the term genocide to describe Israel's actions in Gaza. The Vatican denied he had used the term in the private meeting, but since then, Francis has been more balanced in his remarks and has explicitly condemned the October 7 attack. Without elaborating, Francis said in the letter to Israeli Jews that he was moved by communication from friends and Jewish organizations around the world to assure you of my closeness and affection. I embrace each of you, and especially those who are consumed by anguish, pain, fear, and even anger. He said Catholics are very concerned about the terrible increase in attacks against Jews around the world. We had hoped that never again would be a refrain heard by the new generations. Yet now we see that the path ahead requires ever closer collaboration to eradicate these phenomena. My heart is close to you, to the Holy Land, to all the peoples who inhabit it, 
Israelis and Palestinians, and I pray that the desire for peace may prevail in all, he said. The reconciliation between Jews and Catholics provides a horizon to imagine a future where light replaces darkness, in which friendship replaces hatred, in which cooperation replaces war. Together, Jews and Catholics, we must commit ourselves to this path of friendship, solidarity, and cooperation in seeking ways to repair a destroyed world, uh, working together in every part of the world, and especially in the Holy Land, to recover the ability to see in the face of every person the image of God in which we were created, Francis wrote. That was Pope Reaffirm's special Christian Jewish bond from the Associated Press. Out of the Perspective section, the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 5th, 2024. All right, we're going now to an opinion article here from the Los Angeles Times Opinion section uh, for Thursday, January 25th, 2024. Don't exploit the fight against anti-Semitism. Recent attacks on a Jewish scholar at Harvard reflect the anti-woke agenda by David N. Myers. When feckless agitators accused Derek Penslar of anti-Semitism, you know what something has gone way off the rails. We should be clear. What they are attacking is not just an eminent scholar, but more broadly, the American University as the site of expertise and critical thinking. Penslar, a Harvard history professor, is the embodiment of expertise. He was appointed last week by that institution's interim president, Alan Garber, to co-chair a task force on anti-Semitism at the university. In response to the announcement, right-wing media outlets, including the New York Post and National Review, reacted with indignation, suggesting that Penslar was not suitable for the, for the task because, as the National Review said, he has been critical of Israel. In this case, and effect with that particular accusation, we can see how transparently disingenuous such right-wing critics are. They often assert that criticism of Israeli governmental policy is not necessarily anti-Semitic, but either they don't believe the claim they make or they deploy it strategically to advance their agenda of silence, silencing those with whom they disagree. In Penslar, they simply pick the wrong person. He is a deeply committed Jew, an outstanding scholar who is widely known and respected for his judicious, kindly, and unfailing balanced nature. Over the course of his career, he has developed a reputation as one of the leading historians of Zionism in the world. Penslar's major works from his first book, Zionism and Technocracy, to his most recent book, Zionism and Emotional State, are hallmarks of conceptual rigor, a careful sifting of evidence and clear writing. His reputation extends to Israel, where he is well-known and widely admired by the scholarly establishment there. Indeed, he has been a major factor in the growing and expansion of the Israel studies in North America and Europe. A good deal of the energy behind the attack on Penslar results not from something he wrote, but rather from something he signed, the Elephant in the Room letter, which attracted the support of nearly 3,000 scholars and intellectuals. Drafted in August, well before October 7, the letter called on Israel to make meaningful moves toward democracy by bringing an end to the occupation of Palestinian territory. The letter referred to Israeli control over the West Bank as a regime of apartheid. While this is undeniably sharp language, it captures the harsh and often brutal uh, uh, realities faced by Palestinians in the West Bank who are denied access to the same rights, services, and facilities as Israeli Jews who live there. 
It is language that former Mossad director Tamir Pardo used to describe Israel's stronghold. And it is language that a good number of human rights organizations, including leading Israeli NGOs, have used themselves. These individuals and organizations refer to apartheid not because they are motivated by anti-Semitism, but because it is the word that they believe best describes the two-tiered system of justice with which Palestinians must live in the West Bank. Into the fray have now stepped former Harvard President Lawrence Summers and Anti-Defamation League Chief Executive Jonathan Greenblatt, who both posted messages on social media critical of Penslar. Greenblatt accuses Penslar of being someone who libels the Jewish state. On Tuesday, Representative Elise Stefanak, Republican of New York, went beyond the pale in lambasting him for his despicable anti-Semitic views and statements. These critics don't seem to care that they're being used by right-wing actors, such as Christopher Rufo and the Claremont Institute, intent on attacking the wokeness of the American university and setting in place a new kind of institution marked by conservatism, lack of diversity, and frankly, mediocrity. The strategy of these actors is to identify terms such as critical race theory, social justice, and DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, strip and nuance or virtue from them, strip any nuance or virtue from them, and then use them to caricature fine colleges and universities as little more than re-education camps in the mode of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. For the likes of Rufo and the Claremont Institute, the aim is to reverse decades of multiculturalism, affirmative action, and efforts at diversity that have uh, deeply enriched American higher education. They prefer institutions such as Hillsdale College or the Made Over New College that proudly eschew uh, all forms of diversity in favor of a conservative, anti-woke ideological agenda. Colleges and universities are not perfect institutions. They face their own challenges in navigating the boundary between free speech and respectful discourse. But those of us who care about the integrity and excellence of the higher education system in the U.S. need to awaken to the reality of the growing power of this right-wing campaign of destruction. The attacks on Derek Penslar that cast him as insufficiently attentive to anti-Semitism show how far this movement is willing to go. Its highly partisan agenda has already knocked off some large targets. Let's not allow it to control the future of the American university. That was Don't Exploit the Fight Against Anti-Semitism by David N. Myers and from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 25th, 2024. David N. Myers holds the Khan Chair in Jewish History at UCLA and directs the Alaskan Center for History and Policy and the UCLA Initiative to Study Hate. All right, and now here's something from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. War Draws Some Ultra-Orthodox Jews to Tech Jobs by Jeffrey Fleischman and Melanie Lidman. Tel Aviv. Jakob Schulman spent years studying Torah, poring over the ancient scripture like many boys in his ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. He lived a sequestered religious life, marrying early and having four children before he was 30. But these days, Schumann is learning how to code in a high-rise with a view of the sea and a copy of Steve Jobs' biography nearby. His faith remains the center of his identity, but like a number of students from Israel's traditional yeshiva schools, Schumann wants to join this nation's vibrant technology industry. 
His aspirations come at a time when ultra-Orthodox Jews face increasing resentment over a larger secular society over religious schools, subsidies, and other benefits, including exemption from compulsory military service for Torah students. Those tensions and a move to limit the role of the Supreme Court led to mass street protests last year, as far-right nationalists and religious parties became prominent voices in Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition government. Many Israelis regard the power that religious parties wield as a threat to civil rights and the country's democracy. That concern has been eclipsed somewhat as Israelis have united around the war with Hamas and a small but growing number of ultra-Orthodox Jews known as Haredim have started to push beyond the bounds of centuries-old tradition. They represent a generational shift that may lead to wider integration of religious conservatives into Israeli life at, and its economy. I don't believe in separation. The gap between the Haredi and the secular is closing, said Shulman, 31, a student at JBH, a school that trains Haredi men to become programmers and software developers at firms such as Citibank and Mobileye. In this school, we're exposed to many different people. It's important to understand these worlds. He added that the war and an increased resilience on technology since the COVID-19 pandemic have drawn more ultra-Orthodox Jews out of their enclaves. Haredim have attended shivas for those killed by Hamas militants and 4,000 have volunteered for temporary emergency service in the army since the war began in October. But moderates and secularists view such limited integration as hardly notable when Netanyahu's government is increasing spending on Haredi projects. The government coalition's discretionary spending for yeshiva schools, which teach little science or math, rose to $456 million in 2023 from $322 million in 2022. Hundreds of millions more dollars have been allocated for cultural, religious, and education programs, along with thousands of government-funded jobs that benefit the ultra-Orthodox. Haredim account for about 13% of Israel's population of more than 9 million, with the average family size of about 7 children is a drain on social welfare spending. The Israeli media have reported that poverty and low employment among Haredim could lead to a 16% tax increase on working Israelis and cost the nation's economy $2 trillion over the next 40 years. The Haredim are the cornerstone of the clash of religion and state, said Rabbi Yuri Regev, head of Hedush, an organization that advocates for religious freedom and equality. This problem predates Netanyahu. All previous governments bent the, to the will of the Haredim. He added that the ultra-Orthodox, about 45% of whom are poor, are a great weight and a burden on society. A 2023 survey done before Hiddush, done by Hiddush before the war, found that 70% of Jews in Israel believe the country's most acute internal conflict is between ultra-Orthodox and secular Jews. The study showed that those fault lines were deep when it comes to military and educational issues. 78% opposed a blanket exemption on military service for ultra-Orthodox, and 69% of Jews support complete cancellation or a significant cut in funding for yeshiva schools. That latter figure jumps to 93% for secular Jews. Some fear the Haredim and the extreme right religious Zionist party could upset the Middle East and further damage prospects for peace with the Palestinians. Best-selling author and scholar Yuval Noah Harari wrote an essay in July 
in the left-leaning Haaretz newspaper under the headline, What Will Happen to Judaism If Israel de Israeli Democracy Is Destroyed by Supremacist Zealots? He warned of a spiritual destruction if a uh, messianic state arises to persecute Arabs, secular people, women, and LGBTQ people. When, he asked, if that state were to embrace uh, a racist ideology of Jewish supremacy. Haredim believed that God's will shapes all destinies and that their devotion protects the state of Israel. They have long lived in segregated neighborhoods such as Meya Sherim in Jerusalem and B'nai Brak near Tel Aviv. Men wearing side curls and black hats walk with sacred books to religious schools while Haredi women are the main breadwinners and child care providers. Their large families gather on the Sabbath to stroll amid closed shops and quieted tram lines. This portrait was resolute, uh, resonant in the TV series Shizal about a Haredi father and his artistic son as they confronted noisy neighbors, nosy neighbors and matchmakers on cloistered streets while navigating the clamor and tempered temptations of an encroaching outside world. The show was widely popular in Israel and provided a common ground that for less than an hour each night went beyond suspicions and stereotypes to give secular Jews a glimpse of a world few were intimate with. The other side needs to know that we are Israelis just like everyone else, said Yitzhak Pindras, a Knesset member of the ultra-Orthodox party United Torah Judaism, who blamed employ employers and the army for not doing more to integrate the Haredim. We have a different culture and different traditions, but you don't always need to come down on us. Computer students such as Schulman, whose wife founded a virtual reality production company, aspire to modern lifestyles and bigger incomes. That desire, however, is considered a threat by religious conservatives who worry such enticements may lead to liberal beliefs around marriage and civil rights. Haredi leaders have long opposed women praying at the Western Wall and pulled the young away from their faith. The Haredim are concerned that a person will become his work, said Aaron Fruchtman, vice president of JBH, which has trained 500 Haredim since 2013, many of whom received government funds and private donations for tuition. The question is, how do we get a Haredi guy into the Israeli Defense Forces or into high tech without him losing his religious identity? The Haredi idea is, a first, is first, you're a servant of God, a Torah Jew but integration in the workforce will break down barriers. The early days of Schumann's training were difficult. Like most students from yeshiva schools, Schumann, whose family income is too high to receive public subsidies, knew no English and only a little math. You're starting from zero, he said, literally, from ABC. He added that since the start of the pandemic, more younger Haredim have turned to technology using email and rabbi-approved smartphones. His long hours of studying the Torah for years, he said, will help him with the rigors of coding and software. We have the ability to sit and learn and be dedicated, Shulman said, as students played video game tennis on a big screen while others typed on keyboards. The process of, changing, the process of change is speeding up. He tried to express the contradiction, the navigating of two unreconciled worlds by joking. I'm a mainstream, hardcore Haredi. The war with Hamas has led other Haredim into the military. Rabbi Ram Moshe Rabat, a Haredi who served for 29 years and retired as a lieutenant colonel, 
and chief rabbi for the Air Force, helped enlist Haredi volunteers for short service after October 7. Most had studied in yeshiva until age 26, which had allowed them military exemptions. Some volunteers went into basic training, but many took non-fighting roles such as mechanics, cooks, and drivers. The Haredim are not against the army, Rabat said. What's happening over the years, especially the last few years, is people have been coming out against Haredim. All these political movements were saying the Har- that Haredim are against the army, so the Haredim avoided uh, serving in the army. Now we've come with a different approach. Whoever wants to learn the Torah should learn, and whoever isn't learning should come to the army. Hemi Trachtenberg is a 21-year-old Haredi who enlisted three years ago. It doesn't matter if you like Bibi Netanyahu or not, if you like the Haredim or not, he recently told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, an international news service. At the end of the day, they, Hamas, want to kill us and we need prayers and weapons. The Israelization of the younger generation of Haredim was already well underway when this war began. Anshel Pfeiffer wrote in a November opinion column in Haaretz, It was only natural that those who were already less committed to cutting themselves off from society would feel shame as he saw hundreds of thousands of men and women their age being called upon the day of the Hamas massacre. He added, For now, though, they remain a minority in their community. Aside from praying for Israel's salvation, most of the Haredi groups have continued life as before. Regev said uh, to suggest the ultra-Orthodox are joining society as an overly rosy characterization when so many Haredim don't have well-rounded educations that would benefit the nation's economy. The Haredi's attitude of spiritual strengthening is anathema to the largest secular society, the rabbi said, adding that the ultra-Orthodox oppose secular marriage, civil rights, and using public transportation on the Sabbath. They rely on the public coffers to perpetuate their own poverty. Regev said Israel faces two existential questions, the relationships between religion and state and uh, between Jews and Arabs. The one between religion and state, he said, often appears irreconcilable as the ultra-Orthodox place the sacred above the temporal even when it comes to immediate threats, including COVID and war, against Israel's future. Pinterest, a legislator, disagreed. Haredim are part of the state of Israel, he said. What hurts the state of Israel hurts Haredim. Right now, we're in a period of pain, and we're all feeling the pain. That was War Draws Some Ultra-Orthodox Jews to Tech Jobs by Jeffrey Fleischman and Melanie Lidman from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. Fleischman is a time staff writer, and Lidman is a special correspondent. All right, shifting nationally here to the United States. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 9, 2024. Shift, tough justice goes back years before taking on Trump by Laura J. Nelson. Where Representative Adam B. Schiff stood before the U.S. Senate on the final day of President Trump's first impeachment trial, he reprised a familiar role, prosecutor. The former assistant U.S. attorney hasn't tried a case in more than a decade, but he was surprised at how quickly the muscle memory came back. Wearing a crisp blue suit, the Burbank Democrat launched into a lacerating closing argument, trying to convince senators that Trump lacked the integrity, morality, and temperament to remain in the White House. He has betrayed our national security, and he will do so again. He has compromised our elections, and he will do so again, Schiff said. 
You will not change him. You cannot constrain him. He is who he is. Truth matters little to him. What's right matters even less. And decency matters not at all. The Senate ultimately voted to acquit Trump, but Schiff's leading role in the historic proceeding has become etched in the nation's political psyche, lionizing him among fellow Democrats, demonizing him among Republicans, and seeding his 2024 campaign for the U.S. Senate. The roots of Schiff's tough-on-Trump persona go back to the 1990s, when the former federal prosecutor won a seat in the California legislature as a law enforcement Democrat. In his earliest days in Sacramento, he pushed to increase some penalties, including for uh, young offenders, an approach to criminal justice that is anathema to many progressives today. Though the pursuit of justice has always been a driving force for Schiff, his attitude toward how justice should be applied and to whom has changed in Congress, he has worked on gun control, police misconduct, and investigations into Russia's support for Trump's 2016 campaign and into the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. His time as a federal prosecutor, uh, the 63-year-old Schiff said this week taught him the importance of upholding the rule of law. That's been a core conviction for me, he told the Times in a phone interview, and that training came in much more handy than I would have ever imagined during the era of Trump. After the 1993 murder of Polly Klass, a 12-year-old kid from Pentaluma who was kidnapped by a man with a long criminal history, California enacted harsher sentencing requirements. In 1994, Republican Governor Pete Wilson signed the so-called Three Strikes Law, which doubled the normal sentence for any offender's second felony conviction and raised the penalty for a third conviction to 25 years to life. More than 70% of California voters supported the three strikes law at the ballot box that fall. Back then, Schiff was working as an assistant U.S. attorney in Los Angeles. He handled several high-profile cases, including the third trial of Richard Miller, a former FBI agent, was convicted of passing classified documents to the Soviet Union. The experience taught Schiff how to conduct complicated investigation uh, into a white-collar crime. The not-too-subtle jab at Trump, Schiff also said he learned uh, the way of Russian tradecraft, including how they target people who are of poor moral character, who are philanderers, and who are obsessed with money. During his race for the state Senate in 1996, Schiff fought, well, fought, Schiff fought his well-funded Republican opponents' attempts to paint him as soft on crime. He campaigned on his support for the Three Strikes Law and the death penalty. His election was a victory for California Democrats, who increased the majority in the legislature, as well as a personal victory. Schiff had run for office and lost three times before. He arrived in Sacramento in 1997 as the youngest member of the Senate, determined, he said, to deter crime rather than just prosecute crimes that had already been committed. Nearly 40% of the 142 bills Schiff introduced during his four-year term were related to policing, criminal procedure, and public safety, including efforts to stipend penalties for some offenses by children to build and renovate juvenile halls and to expend crime prevention services for at-risk teenagers, a review of his legislative history shows. Like many presidents, like many Democrats, including President Biden, we wouldn't strike the same balance today, Schiff said. My priority then, and my priority now, has always been to keep Californians safe and keep our communities safe. Some of the sentencing policies of the 90s didn't do much to reduce crime, 
but they did a lot to increase incarceration. I don't think that's the right balance. Schiff's long legislative history is both an advantage and a liability as he vies for an open U.S. Senate seat following the death of Dianne Feinstein. His evolution on criminal justice issues hues with a leftward swing of California Democrats who have signaled through statewide ballot initiatives and the election of progressive prosecutors that the state's tough-on-crime era is over. But after decades of public opinion steadily shifting away from the policies of the 90s, the pendulum seems to be swinging slightly back, said Dan Schnur, a former Republican strategist who teaches political communication at USC and UC Berkeley. He pointed to recent debates over changes to Proposition 47, the 10-year-old law that reduces some felonies to misdemeanors, discussions that he said would, have, would not have taken place several years ago. If the Senate race had occurred in 2020, amid the nationwide upheaval and demands for criminal justice reform that followed the uh, Minneapolis police murder of George Floyd, Schiff's background as a prosecutor and self-described law enforcement Democrat might end up being much a much bigger issue, Schnur said. Progressive criminal justice advocates have accused Schiff of pushing policies that were overly punitive, even by the standards of the 90s. In early 2021, Schiff supporters began floating his name as a possibility for California Attorney General after then-Attorney General Javier Becerra was tapped to become Biden's Secretary of Health and Human Services. When criminal justice activists caught wind of the effort, they sent a searing open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom decrying Schiff's track record and, and describing him as not only supportive of, but deeply invested in, creating our current system of incarceration. Newsom instead picked State Assembly member Rob Bonta, an advocate for abolishing the death penalty and eliminating cash bail. But Schiff was far from being out of step with his party, said former San Fernando Valley lawmaker Bob Hertzberg, who chaired the Assembly's Public Safety Committee at the time. He said Schiff was middle of the road among the Democrats of the late 90s. Everybody was doing tough on crime stuff. It was a different world, Hertzberg said. Their, their constituents were worried about surging crime, fueled in part by the crack cocaine epidemic. In the early 90s, the city of Los Angeles alone saw more than a thousand homicides a year. Some of Schiff's earliest and most punitive bills didn't become law, including one that, try, that sought to try children as young, adults, as, as young as 14 as adults in a criminal court in murder and rape cases. Nor did a bill that would have required that children who committed serious offenses at school be sent to juvenile detention or military boot camps. He wasn't just a bystander in the 90s, getting swept along in the punitive approach to public safety, said USC law professor Jody Armour. He was really at the vanguard, one of the leading voices in promoting those kinds of uh, policies. Schiff also introduced bills to clarify and expand the state's three-strikes policy and lift the five-year limit on sentencing enhancements for nonviolent crimes, opening the door to longer prison sentences. Both became law. In 2000, Schiff's last year in Sacramento, Democratic Governor Gray Davis signed the Schiff-Cardenas Juvenile Justice Crime Prevention Act. The bill, which sent aside $121.3 million annually for local policing and policing and another $121.3 million for programs aimed at curbing youth crime and delinquency, was believed to be the country's largest source of funding at the time for youth crime prevention and intervention. Democrats in Sacramento had decided that juvenile justice reform was an area where the voters would be with us. 
even if the state didn't support overhauling the three-strikes three law, said then-Assembly Speaker Antonio Villaragosa. Efforts to pay for anything other than incarceration were progressive stuff, he said. U.S. Representative Tony Cardenas, then a member of the State Assembly representing the San Fernando Valley, said that when he backed juvenile justice reform, some of his colleagues ribbed him for supporting what they called hug-a-thug programs. Cardenas, who has endorsed Schiff in the Senate race, said he wanted Schiff to co-sponsor the bill because his background as a prosecutor would help deflect criticisms that, alternate, that alternatives uh, to incarceration were soft on crime. Counties use the funding for gang intervention efforts, drug counseling, mental health screenings, and a wide array of other services, including after-school and non-profit programs. Students late, studies later found that children in those programs are less likely to be arrested or incarcerated and more likely to complete any court-ordered community service. Since he arrived in Washington in 2001, after what was then the most expensive house race in history, Schiff had mostly left behind courtroom issues in favor of bills focused on broader law enforcement and criminal justice policies, including police accountability. In 2011, he pushed the FBI to widen its use of familial DNA, in which investigators seeking to identify a crime suspect through their genetic material look for potential relatives and government databases. And after a national scandal erupted over a years-long backlog of more than 13,000 rape kits at the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, Schiff secured the funding to help process them. As grainy cell phone videos of police shootings began to appear, shocking the conscience of the country, Schiff said, he became convinced that the U.S. needed police reform. After Michael Brown was shot to death by a Ferguson, Missouri police officer in 2014, Schiff led members of Congress in pushing for a federal grant program to equip police departments with body-worn cameras. In the summer of 2020, Amid the mass protests calling for criminal justice reform after Floyd was killed by police, Schiff made the rare move of withdrawing his endorsement of then uh, L.A. Dis County District Attorney Jackie Lacey in a contentious re-election fight against progressive challenger George Gascon. Since his election, Gascon has faced two failed recall attempts. Schiff has not endorsed Gascon's bid for re-election. Schiff voted for bills that would have decriminalized marijuana nationally and ended the federal sentencing disparity between drug offenses involving crack and powder cocaine. He was also one of 190 original co-sponsors of the George Floyd Justice in Police Act, Policing Act, which would ban no-knock warrants in federal drug cases and create a national database of complaints and records of police, police misconduct. Schiff's view on the death penalty is among his biggest changes since his days of, days of the federal prosecutor. He said he wrestled with the issue for years and no longer supports capital punishment. There was certainly a time when I supported the death penalty for those who killed cops and those who killed kids, Schiff said this week. But over time, he said, he came to lose confidence in how the law was applied, in part because DNA evidence showed that too many people on death row were innocent and because executions disproportionately affect people of color. Those difficult issues, however, were not what launched Schiff into the national prominence. After Democrats took back the House in 2018, he became chairman of the Intelligence Committee. He developed a national profile through his clashes with Trump and regular appearances on cable news shows. Then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi appointed Schiff as lead manager of Trump's first impeachment trial. 
Democrats had accused Trump of abusing his office when he asked Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to investigate uh, Biden and his son Hunter while Trump was withholding crucial military aid. A second article of impeachment accused Trump of obstructing Congress and, and Congress's investigation into the alleged scheme by refusing to release subpoenaed documents or to allow current and former aides to testify. Representative Zoe Lofgren, Democrat of San Jose, who worked as an impeachment manager alongside Schiff, said he was a thorough and professional and had a, tre and had a tremendous command, command of the facts. Trump's animosity and the death threats that the team received, she said, steeled Schiff to stand up for the truth. Not visible during the televised hearings, Lofgren said was that Schiff was in excruciating pain during a dental to, uh, due to a dental emergency. Schiff said he alternated between Tylenol and Advil every four hours until they could make it to the dentist for a root canal the weekend before closing arguments. At one point, he recalled, fellow impeachment manager Representative Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, gave him a pep talk. Hey, this is like the NBA championship. You gotta play through the pain. Republicans reclaimed the House majority in 2020 and in 2023 removed Schiff from the Intelligence Committee. He had said publicly that there was significant and compelling evidence of collusion between Trump's campaign and the Kremlin in the 2016 election. Robert S. Mueller III, the Justice Department's special counsel in that case, found that Russia had intervened on the on the Trump campaign on the Trump's campaign behalf and that the campaign had welcomed the help. But Mueller did not recommend that the Justice Department charge any Americans. Last year, the GOP-led House voted to censorship, approving a resolution that he said had misled the American people and brought a disrepute upon the House of Representatives. As then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy read out the vote count, 213 to 209 along party lines, Democrats crowded the House floor, chanting shame, shame, Shame. Republicans continue to accuse Schiff of being unfit to hold public office. During Senate candidates' first debate last month, GOP hopeful Steve Garvey told Schiff, Sir, you led to 300 million people. You can't take it back. But to Schiff, the censor is proof of a job done right. After it passed, he rose before his colleagues and said, Today, I wear this partisan vote as a badge of honor. Knowing that I have lived my oath, knowing that I have done my duty to hold a dangerous and out-of-control president accountable, and knowing that I would do so again in a heartbeat if the circumstances should ever require it. That was Schiff's Tough Justice Goes Back Years Before Taking on Trump by Laura J. Nelson from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 9, 2024. All right, on to some entertainment news. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 30, 2024. POTUS fights patriarchy at the Geffen. An all-female cast makes the most of Selena Fillinger's chaotic political farce by Charles McNulty, theater critic. Farce, particularly of the bedroom variety, has traditionally leaned male. A prototypical situation involves a playboy type trying to keep two women apart on a puzzle box set conveniently equipped with multiple doors. POTUS, or behind every great dumbass are seven women trying to keep him alive, Selena Fillinger's comedy that had a turn in the, 20, in the Broadway spotlight in 2022 is a decidedly female addition to the genre. 
The first word spoken in the play, shrieked, in fact, is an unprintable expletive for female genitalia favored by the Brits. Fillinger isn't just being naughty. She's uh, staking out territory for her side, issuing a theatrical corrective and delivering a feminist proclamation. An all-female cast of seven makes its own statement. The characters of POTUS are all connected to the unseen occupant of the Oval Office, another randy male president routinely distracted by the consequences of his misbehavior. His team of enablers is fighting a losing battle to make him look good. The spin room operates on a 24-7 schedule. It's a pressure cooker, and Harriet, Shannon Cochran, is the commanding White House chief of staff, has the weary look of a military general overwhelmed by enemy fire. More often than not, Jean, Celeste Den, the White House press secretary, is on the receiving end of Harriet's bellowing commands. Harriet knows she can trust Jean to get the job done, where she has less where she has less faith in Stephanie Laura Blumenfeld, the president's high-strung secretary, whose main task is blockading his office door when a dalliance is in session. Margaret, Alexandra Billings, the fed-up first lady, seems to be only adding fuel to the public relations fire. An overachiever with a resume to dwarf her husband's, she can't understand why she's not president, or rather she has grown tired of accepting the sexist reason. Meanwhile, Chris Ito Aguirre, a political reporter on the hunt for embarrassing scoops, has her ear cocked for scandal, which doesn't take long to arrive. Dusty Jane Levy, the president's mistress, saunters in with an announcement. She's pregnant. But that's not the only controversy. Bernadette Deidre Lovejoy, the president's sister, has wielded her out of uh, prison. Wearing an ankle monitor and lugging a duffel bag of narcotics, she has come for a presidential pardon, but is more likely to be rearrested. How can Harriet and Jean possibly keep up with the mayhem? Out of this chaos, Fillinger whips up at another emergency. The first act accumulates, accumulates uh, with a bust of suffragist Alice Paul flying into the president's office like a guided missile. The inadvertent attack on the commander-in-chief overwhelms even the hyper-competent damage control of this experienced White House team, but never underestimate a group of scared women who have formed an unholy alliance. Sounds like a laugh riot, no? I wish I could report that the Geffen Playhouse production lives up to its derealist premise, but this spinning top of a play makes, it, makes itself dizzy from overexertion. Farcical success depends on timing. Flat-footed contrivance compounded by hackneyed humor and stereotypical targets contribute to the sense that the play is always a beat behind. The game cast members, un under the direction of Jennifer Chambers, hurl themselves into their roles, fully committing themselves to even the playwright's most questionable choices, but the strain begins to show. On Broadway, an ensemble that included Vanessa Williams, Leah Delaria, Rachel Dratch, and Julie White may have it distracted from his playwriting problems, but no such luck here. Stephanie, the president's nervous Nellie secretary, undergoes a personality change after dipping into Bernadette's bag of pills. For a good portion of the second act, Blumenfeld runs around the stage in a swimming tube acting kooky. The bit quickly wears out its welcome, but she gives it her all. 
As Jessie is called upon to deploy her sexual talents to divert the President's Secret Service agents, Levy delivers lines that are meant to play up the liberation of her character. Her performance as an erotically confident farm girl who slurps blue slushies is vivaciously at times even scene-stealingly charming. But the comedy is too often at Dusty's expense, and not even her increasing empowerment can, can compensate for the way she's deemed demeaned for cheap laughs. It's refreshing to see bodily truth liberated from shame, but Chris, the White House reporter who recently gave birth, is defined less by her dog journalism than by the lactating stains on her blouse. As for Bernadette, there's not much Lovejoy can do with the gruff, uh, felonious lesbian deployed by Fillinger more of as a comic device than a dimensional figure. Billings, an actor who became a crucial character on the Amazon series Transparent, portrays the powerfully contentious first lady role with, uh, with broad strokes. Punchlines strung from Billings' mouth as though they're walking the red carpet at the Academy Awards. Proximity to realism served for Cochran's Harriet and Den's Jean, both of whom do their best not only to right the White House ship, but to rescue the play from its worst excesses. It's a losing game when drugs and violence inflame the increasingly preposterous action. The cast is up against not only an out-of-control plot, but a set by Brett J. Banicus that is as logistically cumbersome as the play's subtle. Stagehands are set in frantic motion when a different corridor of the White House is required or, uh, or the ladies' scene shifts to the ladies' room. At least POTUS has the courage of its zany conviction. It's a thrilling sight to see a stage full of women unleash their power for the benefit of womankind rather than a single, overpromoted man. The play transforms in the end to a feminist rally, but too many false farcical moves spoil the emancipatory fun. That was POTUS Fights Patriarchy at the Geffen by Charles McNulty, theater critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, January 30, 2024. It's called POTUS, or Behind Every Great Dumbass Are Seven Women Trying to Keep Him Alive. It's at the Gil Cates Theater at Geffen Playhouse, 10886 Leconte Avenue in LA. 8 p.m. Wednesdays through Fridays, 3 and 8 p.m. Saturdays, 2 and 7 p.m. Sundays, ends February 25th. Tickets range from $35.39 to $129. Contact 310-208-2028 or geffenplayhouse.org. Running time, 1 hour 50 minutes, including intermission. Right here is a book review article from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, February 4th, 2024. How the Russian Invasion Created This Bulldog. Simon Schuster's new book on the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky tracks his transformation from actor to wartime leader by Stuart Miller. On a train ride back from the front lines, Ukrainian uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky cautioned journalist Simon, Simon Schuster that his nation's fight wasn't just for his own future. If they devour us, the sun in your sky will get dimmer. Schuster, if they, Schuster quotes Zelensky saying of the Russian imperialists, in the journal, journalist's new book, The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. Schuster, a Time Magazine foreign correspondent, has covered Zelensky since his presidential campaign began. 
a relationship that helped him gain extraordinary access not just to the president, but to his inner circle and family. Schuster clearly admired Zelensky, but strived for objectivity, a fact further complicated by his Ukrainian roots. His aunt and a niece had to flee Odessa when the fighting started while his uncle, a doctor, stayed behind to treat the wounded. My family history helped me understand the place and, and feel these events closer to the heart, but I had to struggle with all this in terms of maintaining objectivity, Schuster said by video recently. Hopefully I did a good job, but it's never an exact science. This conversation has been edited for length and clarity. Question. Zelensky's refusal to stand, out, stand down or flee when the invasion came inspired his country. Beyond that act or any tactical decision, how important was the performative as aspect of his presidency? Answer. He developed in his mind an image of what a wartime leader needs to act like, inventing this role as he went. I don't mean to trivialize it, but his specialty in comedy was improv. So, uh, someone throws out, you're a doctor or you're a clown, and you have to embody the role and the situation. In one interview, he described giving himself a pep talk in the early hours of the invasion, saying, the world is watching. He embodied this persona so fully that it became impossible to find remnants of the old Zelensky who was much more happy-go-lucky, jovial, relaxed. He turned into his, this bulldog, armored figure that was stubborn, uncompromising, intent on victory. Question. If Ukraine manages to force Russia out of the Donbass and Crimea, Crimea, how would Zelensky win over the pro-Russian people who have been living with a barrage of Russian propaganda for at least a decade? Answer. The military leadership thinks in terms of pushing the Russians out, but Zelensky thinks about the aftermath. How will we bring these people back? He does have a plan and a vision. There's an entire ministry that is devoted to that question called the Ministry of Reintegration of Temporarily Occupied Territories. One thing he said is essential is turning off the Russian propaganda channels and turning on the Ukrainian TV so that he could speak to them. He does still have a great deal of confidence in his ability to win those people back and explain to them, we are your home, we are your government, we're here to help you. Still, it makes him more nervous and uncertain in the in the way he talked, than even the military challenges, which are gargantuan. It scares him quite a lot. Question. Does that focus on victory hinder negotiations with Vladimir Putin, who has promised the same to Russia, especially if it meant sacrificing some portion of the eastern Ukraine? Answer. It would be an extremely unpopular position to take. Some people in the military and political leadership have suggested looking into difficult territorial concessions but they'd have to begin at preparing the public for that kind of eventuality. That's almost a taboo subject these days. But if he were to move in that direction, he would need to use his skills as a communicator to prepare the public. What Zelensky has been doing is promising victory and often saying it's coming soon. Some in his circle want him to ease up on that message a little bit and start maybe uh, leveling with the Ukrainian public a bit more. Zelensky has not yet shown much of an inclination to do that. I don't have an opinion, and I don't presume to imagine what kinds of decisions and pressures he faces. If public opinion in Ukraine shifts to where the people, according to opinion polls or elections, decide they want a different resolution to this war, whether it be through a settlement, a freezing of the line, he will adjust based on, I think, popular opinion. Question. 
You quote a Ukrainian as saying, The dogs will start barking soon, meaning criticism of Zelensky, tamped down early, uh, tamped down during the heroic early days of the war, will soon start surfacing. Will the military stalemate and declining support abroad from funding hasten uh, that day? And what would that mean for the war effort? Answer. The dogs have started barking. The mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, was a very influential politician, suggested Zelensky is taking Ukraine in an authoritarian direction, comparing some actions to those of Putin in terms of repression of political forces. Things will intensify, especially around the mistakes made in the lead-up to the invasion. That's what the quote was about. Zelensky did not believe the invasion was coming. The military leadership was pushing for more preparations by digging trenches and stockpiling weapons, but Zelensky's team was more con concerned about scaring the public and capital, f uh, capital flight that would suffocate the Ukrainian economy, which led to weaker defenses. He has answered for it in public statements, but mostly it's been, let's look at, the, at that after the war. So he hasn't had to answer for it in practical terms, and inevitably, he will. Question. He not only wants to win, but to repair what he sees as the nation's damaged psyche caused by years of Soviet propaganda and Russian violence. Is all this feasible? Answer. The book traces the evolution of his attitudes toward the Soviet past. It begins with nostalgia and a belief that the Soviet Union achieved a great deal and the Russians and Ukrainians are brotherly nations. Those attitudes are completely transformed. He feels revulsion toward the Soviet past and has tried to rip out of him, out of himself, these elements of nostalgia. Zelensky's popularity is declining, but he has earned a level of respect for his leadership and for staying with his people to fight, it, fight this war, despite enormous risk to himself. If they win, I think he can be a unifying force and a kind of post-war project of healing and unification. I don't see a political figure on the horizon in Ukraine that would fill those shoes more effectively. Question. A journalist warned you, don't be too generous to him. You don't know what he'll become. What do you think he'll become? Answer. In the event of Ukrainian victory, he will be able to part with the extraordinary powers that he has under, under martial law that are legally essential, uh, essentially the power of a dictator. Will Ukraine remain democratic? To what extent will he give journalists the right to criticize him again, which he has suppressed during the war, constitutionally, because the airwaves are seen as critical infrastructure and are used to fight the information war? I remain concerned, but one thing that helps put my mind at ease is the fact that he did allow me to shadow him. He never set any conditions or asked for approval of quotes or anything. And he is very responsive to public opinion. As a comedian and actor, he found it important to please his audience, and he took that with him into politics. And that, as a flip side, he was very sensitive to criticism. When he was unpopular, it wounded him deeply. He may try to convince the public to take a certain view, but he generally doesn't go against the will of the people. That was How the Russian Invasion Created This Bulldog by Stuart Miller from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 4. 2024. Alright, on to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 8, 2024. Critic with a one-of-a-kind voice. Gordon Rogoff was unforgettable in all his roles, be it writer, mentor, or friend, by Charles McNulty, theater critic. 
For the most part, playwrights represent recordable theater history, while actors forlornly in the wings of the, in the, to the end stand for unrecordable history. Theater critic uh, Gordon Rogoff, who died last month at 92, made this observation in a 1966 essay of the state of British theater in the indignant wake of John Osborne's look back in anger. His criticism, collected in two anthologies, Theater is Not Safe and Vanishing Acts, is the perfect rebuttal to this point. No critic since Kenneth Tynan was better able to capture the vivid, richly metaphoric language, the unique brilliance of a stage performance. Rogoff understood that the actor was on the front lines of the theatrical event. He admired the performer's courage, but even more, he appreciated that the actor is where literature and the stage meet. After receiving his undergraduate degree from Yale University, he sailed to England for a summer course at the Shakespeare Institute of the University of Birmingham, where he had the chance to observe Ralph Richardson in repertory at Stratford-upon-Avon. Although he hadn't yet told his father, Rogoff was determined to stay in England. His plan was to study acting, if he could pass the audition for London's Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. He chose a text by Herman Melville rather than a more traditional monologue by Shakespeare, and his American ingenuity gained him entry. The idea for a theater publication was brewing among his fellow acting students. In a short essay in the Tulane Drama Review, Rogoff described what led to a group of aspiring thespians, Vanessa Redgrave among them, to launch Encore magazine, which grew from a school publication into an international source of theater commentary. Between classes in speech, movement, history of costume, mime, and rehearsals of Shakespeare, Wycherley and Lester Storm, the standard repertory of British theater at the time, uh, we, growl we growled quietly about the stale, flat uses to which we saw ourselves moving, all those tennis-anyone entrances and stiff-lipped exits, a lifetime of dim-witted service to a laggard art, he wrote. Nobody was offering answers, in or out of class, yet it was clear that questions had to be answered. He stood for a time as editor of Encore, glimpsing that uh, his, true grip, his true gift was for writing, if not yet ready to embrace the insight. If not ready to embrace the insight, Rogoff, however, had the discernment to understand that the practice of the of theater was and the practice of criticism were not incompatible. His awards vindicated this conviction. Rogoff received a 1976 Obie for his production of Old Timer's Sexual Symphony, shared with the play's author, his life partner Mortimer Lichter, as well as numerous prizes for his theater writing, including the George Jean Nathan Award and the Morton Dowen Zabel Award in criticism from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Criticism can, in the right hands, sometimes be more potent when it's an inside job. After Rogoff returned to the U.S., he worked at the Actors Studio, closely observing the method acting training of Lee Strasberg. In 1964, Rogoff wrote a withering critic of his boss titled Lee Strasberg, Fire and Ice, in which he questioned a cultish system of training that was oblivious to, who, to whole areas of the actor's development, from voice to body work to familiarity with a whole range of playwriting and directorial styles beyond psychological realism. On the strength of this influential essay, 
Rogoff was recruited by Robert Brewstein, the newly appointed dean of the Yale School of Drama, to help transform a state university theater program into a world-class professional conservatory. Rogoff was on the faculty at Yale for more than 35 years, though not consecutively. A public fallout with Brewstein over the drama school's direction led to his departure. During this time, Rogoff held significant academic uh, appointments at SUNY Buffalo and Brooklyn College before returning to Yale in 1986. Teaching was at the center of his professional life, but his approach to academia followed his approach to criticism and theater making. Unmarked by, by careerism and coming of age at a time when that option was an affordable one, he hewed to his own inner dictates. His output may have been slimmer than his talents warranted, but the quality of the work was unsurpassed, and he influenced generations of theater artists and critics, including myself, through his unorthodox teaching, which he pedagogically defended as the exposure of sensibility. Rogoff's theater criticism was long a mainstay of the village voice, often appearing beside the work of his gifted former Yale student Michael Feingold. No one wrote as eloquently or as humorously or as independently as Rogoff. Currently, favor, currying favor was antithetical to his temperament. The status quo was for dismantling, and upholding the reputation of artists was the job of publicists, not critics. The depth of Rogoff's learning was, an immense, was as immense as it was personal to him. His impatience with auteurs who ran roughshod over actors was a piece was of a piece with his disdain for theaters that prioritized their organizational infrastructure over artists, a problem that Rogoff waggishly referred to as the edifice complex. His respect for the playwright as thinker equaled that of his mentor, Eric Bentley, who made the phrase the title of one of his seminal books, but the actor remained at the center of Rogoff's theatrical universe. Enthralled by George C. Scott's 1982 Broadway revival of Noel Coward's Present Laughter, Rogoff praised Scott's performance in the role that Coward himself originated. Rogoff noted that in making the protagonist, Gary Eisendine, uh, quite naturally more dimensional in every way than Coward or his imitators would ever be, bringing uh, to Gary a physical bulk, a fullness of spirit, and a weight of emotional history, Scott rescues the play from being mainly about Gary's dressing gowns and the telephone. Reviewing Kathleen Turner in a stage production of a play he didn't think much of, Pam Jam's Camille, at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, he reflected on what made Turner so gripping on screen. More subtle, substantial, more soiled than Garbo, she nonetheless treats the camera in the same way, a friendly eavesdropper on her floating consciousness. Unlike Meryl Streep, that scholar of emotions borrowing in the archives for card-indexed feeling, Turner lets anything happen. She's large, but never so proud that she can't be intimate. In his eulogy of Geraldine Page, he recalled the actor's studio standard bearer's surprising voice with its panpiping suddenly interrupted by great flat baritone wails. Mourning the great roles the American theater failed to provide her, he called her that rare actor in America or anywhere else, the impish clown who, given half a chance, could blow the gods off Olympus. His high esteem for Ingmar Bergman's stage productions had as much to do 
with the Swedish auteur's boldly rigorous readings of classic texts as with the director's concern for the human center of these plays. He praised the way Bergman's contemporary Hamlet wasn't reductible to concept or shock, but allowed the play to emerge like a painting scrubbed uh, back to its original colors. Rugoff thought Dustin Hoffman's performance as Shylock in The Merchant of Venice was at its best when resisting bombast, the famous apostrophe to his own reality, hath not a Jew eyes, etc., emerges pitilessly from true thought, newly coined as if he's hinting that this is only the beginning. For Rogoff, Mark Rylance's Hamlet was the sweetest if most hair-raising complex prince of his lifetime. His critical prose allows the performance to live again. Roaming the court in stripped flannel pajamas, he's a Marat Said inmate ready to bear a buttock to the prying Polonius, slam Ophelia to the ground with a violence that turns infuriatingly into softness and light and paint Gertrude with the blood smearing his face and body after the murder of Polonius, Rogoff writes. Key to the production's success in his estimation was the way Rylance speaks with a hushed persuasion that never lapses into rant or aria. When Rylance's Hamlet returns to meet Yorick's skull and Ophelia's funeral, he finds something like unbrooding peace at last, a description that Horatio might wish to borrow as he reports his friend's story. I could endlessly quote Rogov, whose mentorship was all the more profound for his doubts about the role. Gurus offended him for life, was ultimately an individual conundrum that had to be uniquely met. But in addition to being my teacher and academic advisor, he was my friend for 35 years, guiding me through life storms with email missives that bucked up my courage in a prose style that Henry James would have admired. As one of my regular theater companions on trips to New York, he refrained from showing me his, uh, showering me with his opinion on the show I was reviewing. He waited until a publication to share his thoughts, not wanting to color my writing mind with his immediate reaction. A few years after graduate school, I pushed him to collect his writing in a second anthology and typing an early manuscript of the book that became Vanishing Acts was perhaps the most fruitful apprenticeship a theater critic could ask for. It wasn't his verdicts that stayed with me. It was the pleasure he took in describing performers, the verve of his detail, the fierceness of his insight into aesthetics and psychologies, and the shimmering beauty of his writing. Reviewing Vanessa Redgrave's performance in a revival of Tennessee Williams' Orpheus Descending in London, he moved into prose poetry to capture the sublimity. From her gray, sullen opening scenes to the final moments when she bursts like a gawky sunflower into the surrounding meanness, she moves mercurially from one texture to another, letting events catch her with a child's surprise. Or take this example from his appraisal of another Central School alum, Judy Dench, and David Hare's Amy's view on Broadway. What is it that Dench at her best does on stage? Some of her arsenal is simple enough. She listens, she breathes, she waits. She pokes at the flower arrangements while listening even more to the voices around her. Hare gives her the best passage in the play when, as an aging actress, she describes what it is to seize the moment, the stage. The description 
is the demonstration itself as full, rounded, darkly burnished as anything you could hope to see or hear this side of, of Leander or chamber music. If criticism, as W.H. Auden said of poetry, survives in the valley of its saying, Rogoff's work should long endure. At a time of shrinking outlets for artists, journalism, and rising down on the value and viability of reviews, the best case that can be made is by writing off writing of this caliber. Rogoff recognized that reading cr real criticism as opposed to consumer reports is an act of writing, an effort to meet artists on their own terms. He knew that for the vast majority of theater artists, the secondary action of the critic rendering opinions is all that matters. Why take trouble over a flashing perception that criticism might emerge from a solitude like their own? Theater criticism may be a minor art that's practiced at the highest level in the best of times by a select few, but Rogoff exemplified what can be achieved in the form. Ephemeral greatness preserved, artistic values clarified, and magisterial writing demonstrating through its own excellence what ought to matter. That was Critic with a One-of-a-Kind Voice by Charles McNulty, Theater Critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 8, 2024. Now here is an article from JewishJournal.com. This is called Rachel Bloom, Tiffany Haddish, Jeff Ross Headlined Israel Fundraiser at Laugh Factory. Starfield event raises $25,000 by Brian Fishback, February 7, 2024. Even though the torrential rains caused a flash flood warning in Los Angeles, over 300 people still braved the weather to attend a sold-out benefit for Israel at the Laugh Factory. It was a testament to the determination of people half a world away willing to show support for Israel in the wake of the October 7th terror attacks. The show, titled Comedy Hug, was a fundraiser for Sheba Medical Center in Tel Aviv, Israel's largest hospital, and for the Kobe Mandel Foundation. The foundation provides emotional support services uh, for thousands of bereaved Israelis who have lost an immediate family member to terror or tragedy via multifaceted therapeutic programs. It was founded by Rabbi Seth and Sharon Mandel in 2001 after the 13-year-old son Kobe and his friend Yosef Isran were murdered by terrorists in Israel. Los Angeles-based comedian Avi Lieberman founded Comedy for Kobe, a biannual comedy tour in the U.S. and Israel dedicated to raising funds and awareness for the Kobe Mandel Foundation. Lieberman not only performed at and co-produced Comedy Hug, he also co-hosted it after host Kevin Nealon unexpectedly left during the latter half of the evening. Still, Nealon set the tone for the Comedy Hug, especially as a non-Jew showing solidarity for the cause. His star power as a former Saturday Night Live performer and head writer was an added draw to sell tickets to see the stacked lineup. Comedian and actress Tiffany Haddish made a brief unannounced appearance. She brought three young children on stage, all appearing to be under 10 years old, including Laugh Factory owner Jamie Mazada's daughter. Haddish quipped that the children paid for the privilege of doing a few jokes for the crowd. In reality, the three separate $1,800 checks that Haddish brandished were donations. Each child's two-line jokes had the crowd roaring. Emmy award-winning actress Rachel Bloom shouted Hebrew vulgarities during her set and quickly clarified that she doesn't know anything any much, uh, any much other Hebrew. After the Israelis' laughter subsided, she explained the translation for the non-Hebrew speakers in the audience. 
comedian Brian Kiley, and Ian Edwards, though not Jewish, also performed. Kylie and Edwards have traveled to Israel several times to do the comedy for Kobe's shows. Jewish comedians Kira Soltanovich and Wendy Liebman had the crowd rolling too. Dan Adut's set was distinguished by his going all-in on jokes about the Israel-Hamas war. His opening salvo gave a good idea of what was to come. Hot take. I think Israel absolutely has a right to exist. I wish I didn't because the Palestinian chants are just so much more, more fun than ours. They're quick. They're snappy. They rhyme. Even if you don't agree with them, they're fun to sing. It would be an injustice to describe the rest of Adot's Israel bit, but a video from a January 3rd performance can be seen on Adot's Instagram feed. With ticket prices starting at $36, the show sold out only a few days after it was announced. It was co-produced by writers Rob Kuttner, Mike Rotman, and David Waghalter. Over the last three decades, Kuttner wrote for Conan O'Brien, Jon Stewart, and Dennis Miller. Although he doesn't normally produce live comedy events, he did put on a few comedy fundraisers in New York in the early 2000s. For Comedy Hug, Kuttner was far more was, was moved to Planet after being exhausted from engaging in comment thread battles about Israel on social media. I saw people in my community raising money for supplies and stuff like that for Israel, Kuttner told the journal. I thought, I have access to all the talent and to all those connections. Let's give people a joyous reason to come out and support. There's probably a bit of fatigue setting in among donors here and there. So I wanted to give Jews and their friends and allies a sort of joyful reason to feel good uh, together and to have some laughter. And I made a conscious effort to not only include Jews in the lineup. It's a statement bringing some solidarity into the community at a time when we really need it. Kuttner said that everyone he reached out to immediately jumped on board to help. Laugh Factory owner Jamie Mazada donated the venue and graphic designer Daria Hoffman designed the flyer. Hoffman is best known for her custom-designed and printed Jewish Simcha invitations. Since the comedians weren't being paid, Kuttner reached out to Jewish-owned businesses to create gift baskets for the talents. These included donations from Bibby's Bakery and Cafe and Munchie's Candies. Kuttner insisted that uh, the journal mention each sponsor in any review of Comedy Hug. Livonia Glatt Market, Got Kosher, Gourmet Bakery, The Tea Book, JDC Design, The Cask Wine and Spirits, and Vidora Insurance Agency. Shamira Public Safety provided extra security for the event. The show was headlined by comedian Jeff Ross. Ross is known as the Roastmaster General, and he might be one of the best at crowd working in the com com comedy business. While in line waiting to get into the show, several attendees spoke about how Ross sang a new song at the Roast of Anti-Semitism show in June. The song was entitled Don't F with Jews. It was hoped that Ross would do a reprise at Comedy Hut. The song was not part of Ross's nearly half-hour set, and, this, and the set didn't need it. Ross's set was a deep, heartfelt, and, of course, funny and to the benefit. Up until that point in the night, Comedy Hug was live-streamed by co-producer Rotman's streaming garage team. When Ross hit the stage, he asked that the cameras be turned off. The Laugh Factory staff, who, during the earlier comedian's sets, had, no, had not actively enforced no photos or videos policy, cracked down. Not because Ross is some sort of diva, it was because he was about to speak contemporaneously. Ross shelled personal stories about his family and how he and his sister had lost both of their parents before turning 20. He spoke about how, in his home in Newark, New Jersey, his parents instilled in him a sense of humor as a defense mechanism.
Ross also told the story about his uncle Murray, known as Mean Murray. As Ross once wrote in his 2009 book, I Only Roast the Ones I Love, his uncle Murray's teasing came from a place of love which hardened the young Ross to handle schoolyard bullies. Uncle Murray was also an army medic who helped liberate a concentration camp in World War II. There was an audible awe in the crowd when Ross later talked about how he draws mental fortitude from a ring given to him by his maternal grandfather, Jack, also a World War II veteran. The ring is made from a boat that Jack pried from a Nazi U-boat he dismantled. Ross wears it everywhere he goes. The topics were heavy, but Ross's stories did not stint a massive lapse. Although Ross has not written a book in 15 years, his set at Comedy Hug is proof that he has all the ingredients for a hilarious and inspiring future bestseller. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Shalom and peace.